Hello and welcome back to the Perpetual Outsider podcast for the Deadly Assassin. This is part, going to be part two of the story. My name is John Bensalia. Thanks for joining me. Um, and here we go. Let's gear up the story in five, four, three, two, one, go. Here we go. Yeah, the first time I uh, I saw this story would have been when I when I bought the video in nineteen ninety one October, which which was a great time to be a fan because after quite a slow start, they they began BBC Video re- began releasing the videos on a more regular basis, and in this month you had the, uh, Deadly Assassin, of course, and you also had the double whammy of Santaran Experiment and Genesis of the Daleks. I mean, I, I had hoped to buy both of them at the same time, but unfortunately, they only had the Deadly Assassin in stock. And I think I got the Santarin Experiment Genesis of the Daleks two days later. Good times. So here we go with the reprise from part one. Shocking cliffhanger in which the Doctor apparently shoots the President stone dead. It's doing a little bit of a... Bit of gurning. <laughs> As he comes down those stairs. Maybe the president's a secret gurner, I don't know. Now that that is a bit of a cheat because you've got the the hidden figure with the gun. So that kind of changes the whole dynamic of the cliffhanger. Because the doctor's trying to shoot the the assassin rather than the rather than the president. He's trying to stop him. Now, who could it be? I wonder. I wonder if I wonder if um, viewers had actually worked out who it was at the time it went out. I, d- I don't know. They're all very kind of a little bit British about it. They're all very kind of. <laughs> there's no crying. There's no wailing. It's just Bruce saying, "We live in evil times." Oh, stand back, please. We got the criminal. <laughs> yes, it's very, very, very kind of civilised, that whole thing. And, you know, they, they get the criminal instantly. Yeah, you see, Pat Gorman, back from the dead. God. He, he could survive anything, really. Um, I, I, I mean, alas, he didn't survive uh, the previous story. He was in The Master Man, Dragra when he was the guard that got burnt to death by the Mandragora Helix. Costumes are great, actually. I haven't talked about the costumes, but they're, they're really imaginative. From from what I remember, I think James Atchison started work on, on the show, and then for, for some reason he left. And I think it was Gene... I want to say it was Gene Williams. I, I wasn't paying attention to the credits, to be honest, which I should have been. But it, yeah, very, very good costume design, very unique, and uh, of course they they pretty much set the pattern for Doctor Who from then on, really, because all the time your costumes would uh, would look that way, you know, even in the present, even in the new Who series. <laughs> Tom Baker does agony very well, actually. Uh, we'll see uh, we'll see a lot more of that in, in at the end of this episode and in the next one. Um, I remember me and my sister used to... There, there was a song at the time of the late 80s called John Ketley is a Weatherman, but we changed it to Tom Baker is a Screamer Man. Because every video that I 
got in like the late eighties. He, he'd always do this, ah, this scream. <laughs> he did it in Pyramids of Mars, and he did it most in Terror of the Zygons. And he actually does it quite a lot here. So um, yeah, I, I just remember me and Emma um, going on about Tom Baker as a screamer. <laughs> Yeah, see, we're moving into kind of courtroom drama territory, which is not a favourite of mine, I must admit. I find courtroom drama, I just find really slow and boring. When it comes down to it, I find courtroom drama is essentially lots of actors shouting at each other in a box room. And there's no room for drama, there's no room for pace, there's no room for, there's no room for, you know, even interesting camera angles, really. But mercifully, they they keep the courtroom stuff to a to a minimum in this, and even then, they they do some quite interesting things like zooming into the doctor's you know doodling cartoon faces on the on the piece of paper, which which is uh, which which is a nice little touch, and it adds a little bit of levity to the proceedings. Overall, I, th- I think. The, the Deadly Assassin is quite a serious drama, but there's some wonderful humour running through it. You know, it's it's a wonderful mix of uh, you know of high drama and black comedy. Really, I think it's uh, I think it's a great combination. Here we go with Engin and Spandrew, a great double act. Robert Holmes was very fond of his double acts, and and this is a good example, I think. If they work, you know, they work incredibly well together. I think um, George Pratt and Eric Chitty. I'm afraid you're wrong about that, Castellan. <laughs> His delivery is, is wonderful. <laughs> As you could see. Mike, he is the only one that could change the doctor's duty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't really think there's a weak link among the guest cast. Actually, I, I think generally, I, I think they're they're all very good, and they they're the good you know good part to play. Philip Hinchcliffe mentions on the commentary that he doesn't understand where how time lords are born really. Which is a, a little bit strange that they don't have any female characters in this, which is which is a bit strange. Probably the only criticism that I'd have of the Deadly Assassin is, you know, where are the women really? Yeah. Presumably, time laws are hatched from eggs or something, or they're or they're born in some sort of machine. I don't, I don't know. Always political argy bargy and self interest, of course, is uh, still very relevant in depressingly in today's society, but uh, I, I won't go on about that. Definitely not. Otherwise, I'll be here ranting till Christmas, I think. The actual first experience I had with The Deadly Assassin would have been the book, uh, which which um, I, I, I remember seeing the... Um, I remember seeing the, the original book, the, the hardback book in the, in the school library. And, it, you know, that quite ghoulish uh, picture of what looks like the doctor wearing a master hat. And 
the artist Mike Little really went to town and kind of like the the gruesome aspects of it with with kind of like blood dripping down almost. Um, it's quite you know, but it had a blood red you know sort of border and a blood red logo color, and it was yeah yeah quite a quite an unsettling uh, cover image. But I remember wanting to borrow it, and then, and then I never could because um, it, it mysteriously disappeared. There was probably a deadly assassin book thief in the school or something. I don't know. Um, but I, I remember I, I did eventually get to read it. Um, I think I managed to buy the book because it, it never seemed to be in the shop when I wanted it. And it was one of those books that I really wanted to buy. And I don't think I managed to buy it until January 1985. I remember, you know, begging my mum and dad to take me out to Crawley to the local, because they had better, you know, better bookshops there. And um, I managed to track down Deadly Assassin Talons of Wen Chiang and Underworld in paperback, and uh, I was delighted. Doctor just about to do something very clever in the courtroom here. You know, for, for all his, uh, you know, for all his jelly babies and his cartoon doodling, you know, Tom Stotter is, he's, he's very clever, very shrewd, the way he manipulates the whole Article 17 thing to, to basically buy himself enough time to go on the hunt for the real killer, which, which allows him 48 hours breathing space. It's, it's clever. Tom, of course, is... Uh, Without without the scarf for once or the or the coat, um, he's he he is basically a man on the run in this. It's it's kind of like he's paired back to the, you know, the the basics of that that time that original time law that went on the run from Gallifrey. Never mind about you know being scared or whatever you know, or any of that recon nonsense that Moffat came up with. I, I think I just prefer the original idea of the, you know, of a doctor being a, a re renegade on the run who just wanted to see the universe for himself and, see, you know, see the many wonders of the universe. I, th I think a big problem that I have with the modern day series is this constant need to rewrite the mystery. Sometimes I think th things are better left as mysteries. If you take the mystery out of the mystery, then it becomes mundane and it becomes it becomes dull. You know, especially with the Timeless Child Week on, which was such a massive leap, I think, from um, from the the original conception of Doctor Who and the whole kind of ethos of you know his his background, you know what we did know about his background. So uh, yeah, I'm 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 not a fan of her, and I I just think a, a big problem I think with fans running the shows that there is there is the temptation to actually make fan fiction and not particularly good fan fiction at that you know i think especially as we've seen with with the timeless child i know some people like it but for me it, i I'm, I'm i'm not a fan i'm afraid but um you know each to their own i'm not going to get into a rant about the drawbacks of you who <laughs> let's enjoy the, uh oh this uh this evil mask again it's Really, really quite disturbing. There's little bits of flesh hanging off, you know, the master's skull and those those awful eyeballs as well. It's kind of like Marcy Feldman golf ball eyes. Quite disturbing. So now the doctor's turn it. He's now become the um, the detective. It's suddenly become a hunt for the uh, for the real assassin. And, uh, 
unfortunately, back in those days, I, I don't really think you could do a lot with the voice to actually disguise the fact that it was um, who it was. You know, obviously, obviously, I, I, I think the viewers would have, would have recognised that it was Goth who was the killer, you know. Sorry about the spoilers, but, you know, but then if, if you're watching, you know, if you haven't watched The Deadly Assassin and you're coming into a commentary, then it's your own damn fault, quite frankly. So it is gone. Uh, <laughs> they, they do the same thing with the robots of death. You know, they, they the main um, perpetrator of that actually speak in a whisper. But I, I think it's the only way that it, that it could work. You know, if they actually had, the, you know, the voice actually speaking out loud, it probably would have blown the mystery to kingdom come, really. Um, they actually tried the same, same kind of thing in Ark of Infinity. But for some reason, the traitor in Ark of Infinity speaks in this really weird kind of helium, helium balloon voice. It's like he, he inhales helium from a balloon. If any sentence speaks like that, I'm not, I'm not really quite sure why, why he does that. Um, whether he just kind of likes an helium, helium for party balloons, I don't know. Maybe it's his hobby. I don't know. But yeah, I think the the other reason why it maybe it is a little bit obvious that Goth is the, the baddie is because he's so desperate to be rid of the Doctor, really. He's, you know, he's very, you know, he's so quick to condemn the Doctor to death. And he, he, he clearly wants him dead and he's clearly furious about the, the whole Article 17 thing. Wonderful set design from Roger Murray Lee. <laughs> That that comic cartoon outline of the time lord, complete with, with the um, with the <laughs> with the with the, the headgear as well. I, th I think it's a wonderful bit of black humour. I think it's wonderful. But yeah, Ro Roger Murray's uh, designs, I, I think, are amazing. A, a really good find for Doctor Who. I think, according to a the documentary, Roger Murray Leach had previously been he he'd been lumped with you know, kind of like game shows and comedy shows. So Doctor Who, I think, was a, re a really good chance to actually use his imagination as much as he could. And he comes up with these wonderful large-scale designs. I mean, he did the same in Ark in Space with that amazing uh, cryogenic art interior that, you know, stretched all the way up like a cavern. He, he had the jungle, jungle design of Planet of Evil, which was, again, wonderful. And you got this very, very big scale, I think. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, th I think the, um, I think for the budget that they had at the time, I think the, the production values stand up remarkably well. Cool. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Ronson screams like a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> the way he fades is a little bit comical. <laughs> Radzibull, are you all right? <sighs> I'm not. Is that the master? Is that God? I don't know. But yeah, one one great thing about mid seventies Doctor Who is that you can always guarantee a good scream, whether it's somebody screaming in horror or whether it's a death scream. They really do come up with some brilliant screams in the mid seventies period of Doctor Who. Uh, not so brilliant action man there in the in the camera frame. The camera frame. 
I've got a feeling they actually missed out Runcible's kind of last kind of gasp. I'm not I'm not sure if the, the restoration team did something to the audio for this. But on the video, I remember he went in the camera like that. And they in this one, it's just he just says in the camera and they miss out that kind of the Runcible does, that kind of gasp of horror, I think. Um, which I'm not really sure about. I mean, maybe just leave things as they are. You, you can't really rewrite history. Tom Baker brings a lot of gravitas to the Doctor. The way, the way he describes, you know, the Master as his, you know, his oldest enemy. You actually, you really, you really believe him. You really believe that these two have a long history of, you know, of, uh... and I want you now. <laughs> yeah, you really believe that you know these two are really bitter old enemies locked in a you know history of struggle, and uh, I'm not really quite sure why they rewrote it. Um, again, we're going back to New Who with with the whole Missy thing. I'm not really quite sure whether all of a sudden she thinks you know she's like the Doctor's best pal because they were never really were they ever you know I mean of course you had the whole thing when they were at school together. You know, and you know, it was something approaching a friendship. But I, I don't really think in you know during the series they were ever you know what you call friends. Oh, poor Runcible! <laughs> that, is, that is that is quite grim. The way you know you've got this great big spear just plunged into the back of his, you know, into his back. It's uh, you know, you know, they were they were never afraid to show grisly death. In uh, in mid seventies Doctor Who, and again, yet again, it's it's another thing which I I really wish they would do more of in the modern series. You know, they you, you wouldn't be able to get away with this kind of level of violence today. Um, but I'm I'm sure I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more further down the line with uh, with all the Matrix stuff. Excitonic circuit trick. I love that little pause that he does there. <laughs> I love I love the way he refers to his prehistoric junk. I think it's uh, I think it's great. See, I I don't know if modern day audiences will find this a, li a little bit too talky. You know, there's quite a quite a bit of exposition going on here about you know. How the matrix works and you know it's the repository of you know the time lord minds at the point of passing or whatever yeah i, I mean I, I don't find it too talky to be honest because probably because it's it's what i was used to really not just with doctor who but other other dramas that there used to be a lot more emphasis on talk whereas today it's just crash bang wallop action and not really kind of enough time to pause and breathe. With 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 the more talky scenes, you get the chance to do that. You actually have the, you know, it, it gives the viewer time to kind of, you know, kind of catch up and, you know, kind of pause for breath, as it were, really. And when, when you've got, you know, great actors like Tom Baker, you know, talky scenes never get boring. You know, he, he just kind of, you know, he, he compels the viewer, I think. You know, re really believable, and um, yeah, just just a brilliant incarnation of the Doctor. You totally believe in 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 his Doctor. So we're about to come on to the the Matrix scenes, which is 
a huge, huge departure from where this story has been going. And that's one of the things I love about The Deadly Assassin, is that you, you don't quite know where you are with it. It's a story that it, it can't really kind of, it can't stay still, really. It's constantly darting about here, here, there and everywhere. And we're about to take the most radical jump yet into, you know, this real kind of weird surrealism. The Doctor had never really kind of tried before. And I, I don't really think it's tried quite as successfully since. They did, they did the sort of thing with the, uh, the ultimate foe. Which I think was good, but I think not quite as successful as the Deadly Assassin does. I think it kind of lacked that kind of that surreal terror that it manages so so well here. Here we go. Off we go. Here we go into the major world. Here we go through the time tunnel of the uh, which is played in reverse from the the opening titles. And uh, lots of cue, lots of evil laughter. This, this is brilliant. I, I love all this surreal stuff. And David Maloney shoots it really well. The way, you know, with the cross fades and the... Um, maybe the plastic crocodile doesn't work quite as, <laughs> quite as well, but I'll, I'll, I'll forgive that. I'll overlook that. Yeah, I mean, it's... Every single nightmare rolled into one, isn't it? You know, every single nightmare that you can think of, you know, like uh, falling off a cliff, being run down by a train, the the dentist and the, the, or the doctor and the hypodermic needle full of blood. It's, it's, I, I, I reckon kids were absolutely glued behind the sofa, I think. Now, I, th I think this is Bernard Horsfall in Samurai Garb. And it's very interesting that um, that that constant mask, and gradually that mask slips away. He, he does a great yell here, actually. <laughs> I think that would have, apparently that was going to be the original literal cliffhanger, but I think the episode was underrunning, so they had to rejig it a bit and bring uh, bring parts of part three forward. That would have that would have been quite a good cliffhanger, I think. But um, the one the one that we get, I think, is brilliant. You know, is is also really good. Yeah, but yeah, Bernard Horsfall. I, I think I'm not quite sure what he played. There's kind of like conflicting reports of what he does play. Um, but he, I, I think he definitely plays the samurai and the clown, which comes up in the next part. He he, do, if you look carefully, I think it does look a little bit like him as the as the surgeon. Which we got here. I mean, this is oh, it's just quite grim, really. <laughs> that massive, you know, uh, hypodermic needle full of red liquid, which you know looks like blood. It's uh, yeah, creepy stuff. Brilliantly done. And again, you've you've got another crossfade into you know a pretty seamless crossfade actually. The way he falls off the trolley and you know rolls onto the. You know the ground and meets this creepy-looking World War One soldier with the gas mask horse. There's something about masks, I think, that's generally very creepy. It's it's great when Doctor Who does that. I mean, we, we previously had it with the Mask of Mandragora with those those golden shining screaming masks, which were great. And here we've got the uh, the train guards all masked up. 
And we're going to get another example of that. Ah! <laughs> um, how does he... His, his boot is outside the train track, so how does it suddenly kind of move in? But, you know, I suppose it's the Matrix. Anything can happen, really. I, I quite like the way the train is, like, sped, sped up. I mean, the Doctor is in real peril there. I mean, he's literally going beetroot red with agony and fear. It's a great cliffhanger. I know I know that some fans think the um, the train looks a little bit a little bit co comedic, but I, I actually buy it. You know, I'll actually buy it because it's it's in the Matrix and it's just a little bit weird. A brilliant cliffhanger and a brilliant episode again. Um, apart from the uh, apart from the crocodile, there's there's nothing to fault it at all. Anyway, join me uh, next time when we go in back into the Matrix for part three of the Deadly Assassin. In the meantime, this is me, John Bensali, signing off. Goodbye for now.